series on the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, we actually just finished the Sermon on the Mount and already got this past spring, so Carl has asked if I could just keep going right along, and I'd be happy to. So this morning, we're going to consider the text from Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 38 to 41. Carlos will be picking right up in verse 42 um, next week moving forward. Before we read the text this morning, where we are in the, in the, in the passage in Matthew is this passage marks the fifth of six antitheses where Jesus corrects the faulty teaching of the Pharisees. There's these six points where he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, I say to you. There's these passages where Jesus is looking at what the Pharisees have been teaching where they have lowered the standard. And he comes in and raises the standard again. And the way we thought about it over the, over the spring, which was helpful for me when I was teaching through it, was it's the idea of Jesus comes in John 10, 10, I come that they might have life and have it to the full. And if you would picture that of like a mighty oak tree growing out on its own, it's a healthy, strong, old oak tree with deep roots that dive deep into the ground. That is the image of the kingdom of God that Jesus came. I have come that you might enter into this kingdom vision for how you are to live, how you are to work, how I have designed you that you might flourish, that you might grow, that you might be blessed, that you might be encouraged. And what the Pharisees had done was cheapen that and turned it into the picture that we used was like a pipe cleaner Christmas tree. You know, there's a difference between the strong mighty oak and then this pipe cleaner that you bought. What the Pharisees were saying was, this is what life is. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's way more than that. I have made you to enter into this the picture of a live, mighty oak, this growing oak, people in process, growing, moving forward. The Pharisees had lowered the standard of God's law to make it easier for them to keep it. I mean, they prided themselves on law-keeping. So what's the easiest way to keep the law? You lower the standard. It's like writing a paper. You're supposed to write a six-page paper. What you do is you write a five-page something paper, and then to get to six pages, you go into the word processor, you squeeze in the margins by a tenth of an inch, and, you, and you're supposed to be in 12 point font, and so you make it 12.1, and suddenly you bleed onto the sixth page, where suddenly you've written the six page paper, but really you know in your heart you've only written the five page paper. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is raising the standard of God's law, and he offers a vision of the kingdom of God that he came to inaugurate. He says it's way bigger, way better than you could ever imagine. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is not so much prescriptive, it's more descriptive. This is what Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, this is what the kingdom of God is to look like. This is, this is what it means to live in community. This is what it means to live in the midst of a fallen world. And that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 38 to 41 where Jesus speaks on revenge and retaliation. Starting in verse 38, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we need you. 
We need you here. We pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you would help us to catch the kingdom vision that we would be a people who serve you, serve you as our Lord and King. We pray that you would quiet our distracted hearts, help us to see you. We pray that your spirit would meet us here. Anything I have to say is absolutely insignificant. We pray that you would meet us, that you would teach us this morning, that you would convict us. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. As I was prepping for the message I, I, for the message this morning, I actually wanted to read the translation from the message Bible. Okay? And don't get your don't get put the guns back in the holsters, okay? We're gonna preach through the ESV and we're gonna talk through the Greek. But I thought I usually I like to see how the message translates things, just to see if it kind of captures the essence of it, the message of the text, okay? So write calm down. I'm gonna read the message, okay? There's a reason why I wanted to do that. Okay, let me just read this, how, how this is translated. It says, here's another old saying that deserves a second look. An eye for an eye, two for a two. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't get back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you to the court and sues you for the shirt off your back, give them up your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. I thought that did a good job of kind of capturing the essence of what we're going to talk about this morning. And an illustration that I thought about when I was considering this text and thinking about it was the Hatfield and McCoy feud. It's kind of this legend, folklore kind of stuff. And the amazing thing about history is like that actually happened. So I mean, you can't make a movie about that. And the Hatfield and McCoy feud is first mentioned in 1865, when one of the McCoys was murdered after returning home from the Civil War. He had joined the Union side and was seen as a traitor. He had a, wound, he had a wounded leg, and he ended up kind of retreating into the cave, and one of the Hatfields found him and shot him in cold blood. Thirteen years later, in 1878, the feud resumes after a dispute over the ownership of a single hog. A hog had, tra had traveled onto uh, the land of the other family. There, were, there was accusations as to who the hog actually belonged to, whether the notch in the ear was a Hatfield notch or a McCoy notch. And out of that, the Hatfield and McCoy feud just spilled over for years. The McCoy brothers killed a Hatfield who testified in the case, and the rest, they say, is history. Back and forth, decades of violence, bloodshed after bloodshed, really no end to the retaliation and bloodshed. And the feud became, the feud itself became what defined these two families ever since. This story is an integral part of American folklore, so much so that even tomorrow, if you watch the History Channel, they have a three-day mini-series just on the Hatfield and McCoy feud with Kevin Costner. I've got a DVR that I'm watching it. But it looks, it looks incredible. And this has become, you hear Hatfield or you hear McCoy, and you instantly think, that's, those are those two families who retaliated against one another and cycled over and over and over and over again. And when we think about that feud and we think about that, it makes us ask the question, what can drive these families to keep up such an epic grudge with such consequences for so long? What can drive these two families to just hate each other? Not for one year. Not for two years, not for ten years, for decades, as they go back and forth and give each other. What can drive these families to hold such a grudge 
with such consequences, real consequences, dead people, for so long. We see this legendary feud and we marvel at its size and scope, but we often seek in our own hearts how we injure others who have injured us. If we're honest with ourselves and we think about our dealings with others, I think we would see that we all engage in many Hatfield and McCoy feuds every day because our hearts want revenge for being hurt. We've all been hurt. We've all been injured. We've all felt insulted, accused, oppressed. We've all been there in our lives. And deep down in our hearts, we have these little mini Hatfield and McCoy feuds where we want to get back at the people who have hurt us. We want justice. And we want it now. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a former minister of Westminster Chapel in London, had a great quote in, uh, in his book on, on uh, sermons on the sermon network. It's a great resource. He said, there is no need to elaborate on this because we are all unfortunately familiar with it. We are all guilty of it. This whole tendency to wrath and anger, to retribution and retaliation, is there at the very depths of human nature. He said it's built into us, into our sinful human nature, into our sinful hearts, deep down. We are people of retaliation and revenge. It's a scary picture. It's a scary thought when we think about it. But there's something we all need to admit, we all need to face it together, is that we all struggle with wanting to retaliate. These moments where we feel hurt and accused and insulted, we all struggle with wanting to just get up and seek justice on our own and to get back at those who have hurt us. The outward manifestation looks different, but really the core heart struggle is the same. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and they just fight. There's just tension there between them. Think about when you were a toddler or if you've seen toddlers before. It's basically, you take my toy, you took my toy, so I'm going to punch you. I'm going to take your toy, I'm going to push you down, I'm going to take what you want. You took it, I'm going to take yours. Think about when we were in high school. You gossiped about me, so I'm going to ruin your reputation by gossiping about you. You said something that was hurtful to me, I'm going to get you. And I'm going to spread rumors and gossip about you and try to ruin you. Think about in college. You got a better grade than me, so I'm going to try to make you look stupid in some other area of your life to make me look smarter. You might be doing better than me academically, but I'm going to do better than you in some other situation, and I'm going to see to it. I'm going to make sure that that happens. Think about in work. You stole an idea from me and got credit for it, so now I'm going to secretly sabotage your efforts so you look unprofessional. That was my idea. You know it, I know it, you got credit for it, and now I'm going to try to pull the carpet out from underneath you to make you look like you don't know what you're doing. Think about it in your family, or family conversations that you have, maybe within your family. You always talk about how great your kids are. So I'll do whatever it takes to one-up you when we talk. You have such great stories about how your kids are growing and like memorizing the short catechism in Latin. So, I'm going to mention this story about how we did whatever. I mean, you think about those interpersonal communications that we have. We are all people of one up. We one up each other. We love doing it. We love to one up it. We either do it aggressively or we do it passive aggressively. But we are people of one ups each other. Think about even in the courts, the court system. 
I don't really just, I don't want what is lawfully owed to me. Even if the fact that you broke the law, I've been injured, and there actually are lawful reasons for me to receive some sort of award for that, to be repaid. I don't just want what's lawfully owed to me. I want additional damages awarded to me so that I can really stick it to you. I don't want just what's owed. I want that and then some, just so that you learn your lesson and you can really, I can stick it to you. The thing I want us to realize as we consider this text is that the treadmill of retaliation is a hard one to get off of. We're stuck on it, and Jesus offers us a solution and a way out. Basically, it boils down to the fact that we think way too much of ourselves when our personal image, reputation, or agenda is attacked. And when we feel cornered, we start fighting our way out instead of trusting in Jesus. Jesus says, look to me. I fight for you. I'm the king. You're not. But our hearts want to put on the boxing gloves when we feel like we're backed into a corner and just start swinging. And we don't care what it takes, we will fight our way out of that corner. The main questions that I want us to consider this morning as we look at this text is how do we move from self-protection to self-sacrifice? How does the gospel, via Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, point us beyond our personal vendettas and towards the vision of the kingdom of God? How does it move us beyond ourselves into his vision for the kingdom that he's describing here in the summer of now? What hope does Jesus give us when we feel wronged and we want to retaliate or get defensive? Those are the questions that we're going to look at. And we're going to see three main points this morning. So if you're a note-taking kind of person, here's your shot. Our three main points this morning are Christ offers us Perspective when we are insulted. Notice the title for my message is Perspective Instead of Retaliation. What Christ is doing here is moving into a, moving into our world and saying, I'm giving you a heavenly vision for what the kingdom of God looks like. The hope that that brings, the encouragement that that brings, the rest that that brings. And so we're going to kind of focus on the idea of Christ changing our vision, giving us a new pair of glasses, so to speak. That Christ offers us in our first point, perspective when we are insulted. Second point, Christ offers us perspective when we are accused. And third, Christ offers us perspective when we are oppressed. So insulted, accused, and oppressed. And that kind of follows right along with what's going on in the text. Let's look at point one, Christ offers us perspective when we are insulted. And just to let you know, this is going to be the longest point by far. Because what it does is it sets the stage for the two other illustrations that Jesus uses. We're going to talk about being slapped in the face, and then it talks about, we're going to look at the cloak, and then we're going to look at walking the second mile. But the first one sets the stage for that. So when I say point two, and you're like, we're going to be here till three o'clock. No, we're not. Okay? This is going to be the first point by far. Christ offers us perspective when we are insulted. The thing we need to remember is the main thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is to describe what Christianity looks like in the midst of a fallen world. Jesus does not pretend that brokenness and sin don't exist. He knows that brokenness and sin exist. That's why he came into the midst of a broken and fallen world. He says, in the midst of this, I have come to bring a kingdom that looks different. My kingdom is different from the kingdom of the world. The people that I call, the people that I love, the people who associate with me, who follow me, are called to be different. Kind of a Christian counterculture, for lack of a better phrase. 
Christ is describing what the lives of those who follow him are to look like. And there's two worldviews at war here that we see. Our culture says, fight for your rights. Don't take any flack from anyone. You need to defend yourself. You need to look out for you because nobody else is looking out for you. You need to defend yourself at all costs. The other, the other worldview that's at war here is the kingdom of God, the one that Jesus is talking about, where Jesus says, endure personal injury with grace. One says, fight for yourself, defend yourself. The other one says, you have nothing to defend yourself with. Look to me, I'm the king. These two worldviews that clash, they clash in our own hearts as we try to figure out what it means to be a Christian and live in a broken world. But in verse 38, let's see where Jesus starts off. As you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Remember, he's, he's, he's one of the six antitheses where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So here's the you've heard it said part. This is most commonly known as lex talionis, literally the law of retribution. And it's originally mentioned in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. This idea of the, the law of retribution. And the original intent for this was for use by Old Testament judges to define proper justice and limit personal revenge. It's basically saying, let the punishment fit the crime. Mostly it referred to monetary fines instead of mutilation, as most people say, oh well, you know, if a hand gets cut off, go cut that person's hand off. Usually in its application, what that meant is don't go take an axe and cut your neighbor's hand off. What it means is let the punishment fit the crime. There is an award that needs to be given, and it's actually to limit, to, to, it's actually to put a stamp on personal revenge, to get to end the cycle of revenge, where it's like, you killed my brother, so I'm going to kill yours. Oh, well, now you killed mine, so I'm going to kill yours. And actually, this law was brought in, in the law courts, to be able to give the judges a, a system to where they can look at it and say, here's where it ends right now. Let the punishment fit the crime. But the Pharisees had twisted the application of this law by taking it out of the original intent, which was to be in the law courts, to take it out of that realm and move it into the realm of personal relationships to justify personal revenge. They took it out of the courts and said, no, you can apply this in your own everyday dealings with people, but it's okay for you to just go retaliate against folks. And Jesus comes and says, no, because Leviticus 19.18 expressly forbid this. The Pharisees knew this. They were, they were people who memorized this, who had it in their hearts. Leviticus 19.18 expressly forbid it. It said, You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Expressly forbid it. John Wyndham had a great quote. He said, Thus this excellent and stern principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. The Pharisees took this, this thing that was originally designed to limit it and used that as a crutch to give license to it. To say, it's okay. It's okay if someone insults you. Go insult them back. Jesus says, no, that's not the intent. That's the fake pipe cleaner version of what I have come. Here's the oak tree. It goes way deeper than that. It's way bigger than that. But we might hear those words and we think in our own lives if we've been accused, we might hear those words and think, I think I'd like a little bit more Lex Talionis in my personal relationships, thank you very much, because I'm tired of being pushed around. I think I'd like a little bit more Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I kind of like that idea. 
Basically, what sin drives us to do is play Mad Libs with the golden rule of Matthew 7 12. You're familiar with Mad Libs? You have a sentence and you take it as a few blanks in it and it tells you to put in any verb. You kind of just run through it. Sin causes us to play Mad Libs with the golden rule, to where basically it reads, injure others as they have injured you. Sin drives us to do that, to take this great teaching and twist it. The problem with that, though, the problem of sin, problem of living in a broken world is that it drives us to this endless cycle of injury. This endless cycle of insults. This endless cycle of killing. This endless cycle of accusations. And Jesus comes and says, get off the treadmill of retaliation. Endless cycle. Culture cries out for you to avenge yourself. But Jesus gives us the vision for the kingdom of God in verse 39. He says in verse 38, you have heard it said, I for not you for two. Now in verse 39, he comes on and he is he's correcting this. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We hear this verse and think Jesus is just calling us to be a doormat or a strict pacifist in every situation. But Jesus is calling us not to fight for things that are worthy of fighting that we are just to lay down and just be a doormat. But remember, Jesus is giving us a kingdom vision that there are times when we fight for what God requires to defend His holy name. When we fight to defend our families from harm for those who would come in to seek to kill our families and harm them. There are times to fight. There are times. But what Jesus is saying is, as a kingdom principle, that is not the first thing you run to. The first thing you don't run to is to go get the club. The first thing you run to is me. Because our inclinations want to run and grab the things to go and injure others. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Run to me as the king. The Greek words that are used here are extremely helpful when we think through this verse. The word that's used for evil in the passage says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That word there is masculine, not neuter. And the reason that matters is because Jesus is not just telling us to condone kind of the larger idea of evil. Kind of this out there kind of ether, evil stuff. He says, no, 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 no. Don't resist the one, the person. He's applying it to personal relationships. Don't resist the evil one. We see it further. We see that further when they use this, the word that's used for slap means to strike with an open hand. Because we see in verse 39, it says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And we think about how that actually happened. You got slapped on the right cheek. Okay? If I'm right-handed and I'm facing you, if I went this way as a blow to where I'm trying to harm you or injure you, that would be to your left cheek. This is a backhanded slap. This is an insulting slap across the chest what Jesus is talking about. And this, is, this insult that he's talking about, he's given us perspective in the midst of this, because we read this verse and we probably can't think of the last time somebody came up and just backhanded us across the face. I can't think of the last time I was backhanded across the face. I probably deserved it, but I can't think of the last time somebody's walked up and smacked me in the face. But, we can remember the last time that someone either insulted us to our face or insulted us online. We feel like our reputations have been injured. We feel like we've been insulted. 
And what Jesus says here is hard because he's calling us not to retaliate when we feel our reputation has been injured. He says it's way bigger than your reputation and your ego. It's way bigger than your view of yourself. He's calling Christians to get off the retaliation treadmill and rest in him. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. Wait for the King. Spurgeon had a great quote. He says, We are to be as the animal when bad men are the hammers. We're to be the animal. To bring up, to absorb those blows. We are to be as the animal when bad men are the hammers. When we think about Jesus being the King and Him saying, Rest in me. I will vindicate you. I will fight for you. If there is a kingdom, if you believe that there is this kingdom and the king sits on the throne, if you really believe that, does the picture of Jesus as king actually guide you? Or is it something you just pay lip service to and then you go on and be the king of your life? Is it something that you rest in? Is it something that you ground your hope in? The fact that you feel insulted and accused and oppressed, that you look to the king but it's not just something that you pay lip service to, but something that actually models your life. Your life looks different because you have a king. You don't have to fight for yourself because you trust that Jesus is sitting on the front. Does your life mirror that? Because if the Sermon on the Mount describes the kingdom of God, if that, if Jesus is doing what he says that he's doing, saying, this is what my kingdom looks like. If I'm the king and I'm on the front and this is what the kingdom looks like, if that is actually true and what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount, then there is only room for one king and it's not you or me. If the kingdom exists, as Jesus said, there's only one king. You can't have two. Either Jesus is it or you're trying to be the king yourself. And when we try to be the king ourselves, chaos breaks out. I don't know about you or me. If I was king or if you were queen for a day, we would make an absolute mess. Because we're selfish. We make poor decisions. That's why we're thankful for Jesus. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says that you were bought with a price. You were bought. You are purchased by the king. You are not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. And we need to remember that any rights we claim to have only exist because Christ purchased us, purchased them for us at the cross. Everything we have is because of Jesus. Everything we hold on to is because of Jesus. Everything we claim to have or to know or to want is given to us in Christ. He purchased it for us. You can't take the law into your own hands because you stand condemned under that very same law. You do not have the, the high moral upper ground. You don't. You stand condemned under that law. So for you to take the law into your own hands just does not exist. Christ has come. Think about, think about what humanity did for Jesus. Humanity backhanded Jesus all the way to Calvary. Backhanded him all the way to Calvary. And he still willingly hung on the cross to save us from our endless cycle of self-protection. Backhanded all the way to the cross. So, because he fights for us. To help us break that cycle of retaliation in our Jesus died for that, so that he might be king, and that you might that you might bow the knee to him. If Romans 3.23 is true, if 
for all who have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If that's really true about you and me, which it is, if we all stand condemned under sin, what part of our reputations are we actually holding on to? If that's really true, then what are we holding on to with such grip that we're unwilling to let it go when we feel like it's being accepted? Are we justifying ourselves? Is it self-justification? You proving your existence to other people. You proving I have a right to be here. I have a right to think this way. I have a right to do what I want to do. That I am, I make myself right. Is it self-justification? Or is it justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone? Is it justification by your own striving, justification by your own revenge, justification by your clinging to your ego, or is it justification by grace, is it justification by faith? In Jesus, what is it? You can't have both. Either he's king or he's not. Christ frees us from the reputations we cling to, and he offers us perspective when we're insulted. In these moments where we feel like we are being accused and we feel like we've been backhanded, we hear that someone's gossiped against us or somebody has slandered us, either in court or slandered us at work or slandered us at a family gathering. These moments where we feel insulted, Christ commands us, he frees us from this cycle of retaliation by saying, Quit fighting for yourself. I will fight for you. I will do it. I'm big enough. I'm strong enough. I will do it. Lay down your weapons and stop fighting. The cycle has to be broken. We see that Jesus further applies this kingdom principle in the next verse by giving us perspective when we feel accused. This is our second Christ gives us perspective on our situation and ourselves, saying it's bigger than you when we feel insulted. Remember, he's saying this is what kingdom life looks like in the midst of a broken and fallen world. It looks different than you think. Here's the second point, that Christ gives us perspective when we are accused. Christ continues to correct the faulty teachings of the Pharisees as he offers two more illustrations in verses 40 and 41. Let's, let's read what Jesus says in verse 40. It says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. He further draws out his kingdom principle. Let's look at verse 40. It's the image of a lawsuit. The person Jesus mentions is dragged into court and sued for this tunic. Which in those days, like we think, you know, you go to Old Navy and you buy a new t-shirt, no big deal. Okay? In those days, the tunic was a big deal. People didn't have closets full of clothes like we do. You know, we give half of them away at Goodwill every year because they don't fit or we just don't like them. A tunic was a big deal. And someone is being dragged into court and accused and being sued for the tunic that he has. It's a sizable amount in Jesus' day. And the thing we need to remember is this is an illustration of how the kingdom of God is to look. This is not a play-by-play -play on biblical lawsuits, okay? It's an illustration that Jesus gives us. He doesn't give us, oh, if only lawsuits were only in like this one verse, if it was only that easy. This is not a play-by-play, -play, okay? This is a vision for how this kingdom mentality works itself out. The big picture that we see here is Romans 12, 19 to 21, where Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, 
replaces the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ uses the imagery of being sued in verse 40 because it is so offensive to be taken to court. It is so offensive to have someone come and say, I'll see you in court. Here's your papers. We feel insulted, accused. We feel, it's almost like we feel guilty on the spot. I mean, isn't it true that our true colors come out when we are accused of something? When you've been accused and you think that you're really been wrongly, wrongly accused, boy, the claws really come out. But even if you're guilty, even if you know you did it, what do you do? Defend yourself. You play it off, it's not that bad, or you just pretend it didn't happen. You just lie about it. I mean, our true colors come out when we're accused of something. Even if we're guilty, we still protest. When I was in third grade, I remember my teacher's name was Miss Leonard. Loved her. And it came a time where we were taking up textbooks. We kind of had a mid-year uh, changeover of textbooks in her room. It's kind of a big deal. And I remember taking my textbook. And we were taking them all up. And mine, mine had some ripped pages in it. I had basically messed my book up. And I was afraid of what was going to happen. And so I hid it back in the deep recesses of my desk. I didn't want to turn it in. I was, I was afraid of the retribution that would follow my head for having a messed up textbook. And we looked minute upon minute upon minute upon minute. We were one book short. The count was off. Miss Leonard knew it. The problem is I knew it too. The count was off. My book was, was way back in the back behind like my little, my little uh, you know, crayon case and all that kind of stuff. It was third grade. I wasn't doing algebra. But it was, it was stuck way back there in the desk. I knew it was there, and somebody else did too. And my, you know how usually you have a desk where there are two together? You know, we had the pair of desks, and my, my desk mate threw me under the bus and sold me out. And said, his book's in his desk. Guess what I did? Oh, yes, teacher, here it is. I'm so sorry. I denied it. I denied it to the last minute because I was afraid of what was going to happen. And you know what? The book was found, and it wasn't that big of a deal. I was a third grader. It had marks in it. Whose book doesn't it? I protested until the very last minute. I was actually insulted that my guy next to me. I mean, I'm 31. This happened a, a while ago, and I still remember him throwing me out of the bus. <laughs> How could you do that? I thought we were friends. But he rightfully did it. And I protested until the bitter end because my heart didn't want to admit that I was guilty, and I was afraid. As we look at this text, the reference to the cloak is interesting because there are specific Old Testament laws that protected someone from wrongly taking a person's cloak. The cloak was a big deal. Exodus 20, 22, verse 27 said, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Christ says, if someone, if someone drags you into a court and accuses you and wants to sue you and take your tenure, remember what the message said? Gift wrap your best cloak and give it to them. Give them something even more valuable freely. Live generously. Be open-handed. Keep burning, burning coals on the head of that person by loving them and being generous with them. The cloak was a very valuable item. 
And Christ takes our knee-jerk reaction to being accused and He bumps it up a notch with this illustration. If someone sues you and takes your tunic, which he might be well entitled to, give your accuser something even more valuable. And this is hard to hear because our hearts cry out for justice. We say, why in the world would I do that? Why do I want to give him my cloak? I like my cloak. It's good cloak. I need it. Jesus says, give it to him freely. If someone accuses us, we rush to find something to accuse them of, don't we? Oh, you found me? Okay, I'm going to file a camera suit. Take that. Christ's teaching is hard to swallow because it places a premium on humility and faith. It places a premium on trust. That we don't clamor for our rights because we trust the true judge in heaven will do what is right. That the king's on the throne and he will make it work. Because he's sovereign. And we don't place our identity and worth in our possessions because it's been all been given to us by God. We can freely give that cloak because we know it's a gift of grace that Christ has given us. Everything that we have is Jesus. It's in the first place. And then it's all loan to us. And we can be free with it and freely give it. There's a great quote by Dan Doriani in his book that I wanted to read. This is his little um, commentary on Sermon Mount. Super helpful. This thing's great. Doriani says, That's easier said than done because it defies human nature. But it's consistent with a believing heart. A heart that trusts God for vindication. A man who's been humbled by his sin... A man who knows he is guilty and redeemed by grace alone will not protest too much in a false charge. We are like criminals who are guilty of a hundred crimes, but who oddly enough are not guilty of the charges at hand. Still, even if we did not commit the act in question, we did something else, just like it, in a rough way we merit the charges. Saying no one's blameless. No one's blameless in the midst of it. And Christ's words just cut right to our hearts where we want to fight for ourselves. The problem is we forget that we stand accused and condemned before a holy God, and yet even in the midst of that rebellion, He still shows His Christ. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're shaking our fist at Him. He still loved us and showed His Christ. That Christians are called to be different and model the kingdom of God in their spheres of influence. And the question I want to ask you this morning, is your life different? Is, is your life showing this? How is Jesus becoming more precious to you? You look back on the past year. How is Jesus more precious to you? How do you see your need for Him more this year than you did last year? Is the Holy Spirit softening your heart so that you can stop fighting for yourself and start resting in God's sovereignty? Do you see that Christ is at work in your heart? That the Holy Spirit is softening you? Something we need to pay attention to and think through. That living our lives under the rule of King Jesus is hard because every ounce of our sinful nature cries out for revenge when we're insulted. The Sermon on the Mount does two things remarkably well. It shows us the true nature of our hearts. It does that really, really well. And it also shows us the nature of the kingdom of God. These two worldviews at, at war. These two things give us perspective when we feel the need to defend ourselves. It says you are way, way, way more sinful than you can ever imagine. But... Way, way, way more love and accepted in Jesus than you could ever dare hope. In verse 41, Christ uses one more illustration to further drive home this vision of the kingdom of God. We're almost done. Point three, Christ offers us perspective when we're oppressed. Verse 41, it says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Up to this point, Jesus has commanded Christians to show kindness to those who insult them and those that accuse them. Now Jesus ups the ante again. During Jesus' day, the Romans occupied Jerusalem, and Roman law allowed soldiers to 
commandeer local citizens to carry their equipment for a mile. I mean, this was law of the day, and this was absolutely humiliating. Think about someone coming up who is a foreign oppressor of your land. They are in your backyard, and they're coming to you and saying, because of the law of the land, which I impose upon you, pick my stuff up and carry it for a mile. Commanded to do it. This was humiliating. But Jesus' teaching is clear that you are to humbly walk the first mile and then offer the second mile for free. Give them what they want and then serve them with the second one. Die to yourself. Die to yourself and live unto Jesus. The kingdom of God is marked by humility, generosity, and service. And Christians are people marked by these traits. Are you? Are you a person marked by serving your neighbor who's hard to love? Doug Kelly said, these are my professors in seminary, he said, Christians will face trials like everyone else, but will be able to handle them like no one else. Why? Because Jesus is on the front, that's why. As we conclude, Christ calls us out of the endless cycle of retaliation and self-preservation, because the, the kingdom vision that Christ is casting here is way bigger than our personal vendettas. The values of the kingdom of God are the same as the king who, who brings them about. Our values are Jesus' values. Our vision is Jesus' values. We need a change of perspective, and the Sermon on the Mount gives it to us constantly. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus just, time after time after time, is coming and saying, this is way bigger than you could ever imagine. You settled for the pipe cleaner. I've come to give you the real deal. Christians look to Christ, not themselves. Jesus turned the other cheek when he was insulted. The whole world backhanded him. He turned the other cheek. When Jesus was wrongly accused, he faced the cross for us. The only innocent man in the whole wide world who didn't deserve it took the death that you and I deserve because he loved us and wanted to show us grace. It's crazy talk. Jesus never gave up. He walked the extra mile for you and for me, freely taking up our sin, walking it a mile, and then freely giving even more than that. That's our call. He broke the cycle of death and hell so that we could be free from it by His grace. And aren't we thankful that the cycle is broken? That the cycle of death and hell and sin has been broken through the cross. And we walked out of the tomb. And we don't live in fear of condemnation. We don't live in fear of what's going on. We trust the King. The cycle is broken. Our Lord calls us to let Him fight for us. And He's big enough to handle it. Christ, Christ will fight for you. He's promised to do it. Lay down your weapons and trust the King. Amen? Father, we're thankful that you walked the second mile for us. We're thankful that you showed us grace. We're thankful that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our worry and anxiety, Lord, you came and redeemed us. Father, we pray that you would get, help us to get off the cycle of retaliation, get off the treadmill, that we would look to you, that we would fully trust you as our King, that you might be glorified. Pray that you would help us as we continue our worship, as we sing together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.